good to see all of you here this morning. Happy birthday, I guess is appropriate. Uh, Levi did a good job of kind of capturing uh, just that whole aspect, but just reflecting this week regarding the reality that it's been four years and just feeling thankful for all of you, what you've put into Center Church, what you are putting into it, and, and how you've made it, sustained it, um, and your faithfulness for it, so I'm really thankful for that. Um, but even more than that, thankful for God's faithfulness to his church. Uh, that's why his church exists. That's why his church grows. Um, that's why we're faithful in any way that we are faithful is because he's been faithful to us. And so it's a great reminder for us of that reality, and it's good that we can eat sweet food and drink hopefully good coffee. I don't know because I don't drink it, but I hope it's good coffee for y'all. So, all right, we are going to uh, pick back up our sermon series going through the New Testament book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible or you have a device, if you want to turn or swipe there, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, but I'm going to give just a bit of a recap here as to where we've been thus far. So in chapter 1, the author of Hebrews has sought to paint a picture of Jesus that's high and lifted up. He, he is far above everyone and everything. And, and so last week we talked about, he, he kind of made this movement. He, he painted this picture of who Jesus is, and then he said, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. He's saying we must pay much closer attention to the gospel. And we talked last week about how we have this temptation to kind of curate a designer worship experience that will make the, the Christian faith what we want it to be. So I'll engage in this, but not that. I'll come when it's convenient, when I feel like it, but not when I don't want to. And, and so the picture that the author was, was painting for us last week was of a ship who has come into harbor, but it's never tethered itself down. It's never anchored itself. And the idea for us spiritually is that uh, we're not anchored to Jesus. We think we are, but we're not. And what happens is when we're not tethered, anchored to Jesus, is we begin to slowly drift away from him. But we don't think that's happening because it's this slow fade. So, so we're oblivious. In fact, we would think otherwise. We think, I'm fine, I'm good, but the author of Hebrews would say this reality is pervasive. It's pervasive. And we might find ourselves thinking or saying, well, I know what my relationship with Jesus is like, and no one can tell me differently. Or maybe on the other side of the coin, at times we find ourselves saying, I just don't feel close to God, or I don't need the church. Or maybe we find ourselves excitedly talking about many things except Jesus, or except the gospel. The reality is this, if we're not anchored to Jesus, if we're not tethered to him, if we are not growing in the gospel, we are drifting away from it. There's no middle ground. There's no lukewarm. We're either hot or cold. We're growing or we're drifting. And that's where we come to verse 5 of chapter 2 this morning. So let's read the five verses we're looking at this morning. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, 
of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. I love, I love that the author says this right here. It has been testified somewhere. So if I'm ever preaching and I'm like, I know the Bible says this somewhere, but I don't know where it is, and I just haven't memorized it, like, there, that's where I'm going to, right? Like, see, the Bible does that as well. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this opportunity that we have to look at your word. Would you teach us in these moments, as we come in here distracted by many things, maybe drifting from you, would you still our hearts? Would you help us to hear what you want us to hear? Would you challenge us and encourage us? Would you tenderize our hearts so that they're soft and willing to listen, willing to respond to you? So that as we leave here today, we can be refreshed in the gospel. That we can say, that is good news. That is the best news in this world, and I'm going to cling to that. So God, would you do your work by the power of your spirit in these moments? In your name I pray. Amen. Casey, my wife, and I were reading these verses earlier this week, and we noticed something that just kind of stuck out to us right away. Just there's different time phases talked about in these verses that to us made it really confusing at first blush. It talks about the world to come at present, not yet for a little while. And so it's like jumping around throughout history, and it's like, where are we in all of this? And so we'll try and sort some of this out this morning. But uh, what this is speaking about is something called, theologically at least, the already but not yet. The already but not yet. So Jesus has come. He's ushered in a new way. He's ushered in salvation. He's ushered in a new covenant. And that's here. It's effected, but it's not fully realized. It's already, but it's not yet. And this is something we see throughout the Bible, and we're going to see it pretty acutely this morning as we get into this. So verse 5 begins uh, with another contrast of Jesus and angels. So chapter 1 had this big emphasis looking at Jesus as compared to angels. And we see that again here. It's speaking of the world to come. And God is saying that he subjected the world to come, what we might know as heaven, okay? God subjected that to, to Jesus, not to angels, only to Jesus. And the author is talking about where Jesus' greatness, where his salvation is headed, to heaven. Jesus' salvation is cosmic, so, so it's looking at all of it. It's looking at what is to come, the world to come. But it also affects the here and now. It, it breaks in to our reality here today, at present, 
So Jesus' salvation is already, but not yet. It is, but not fully realized. It's here, but there's much more that awaits those who are saved by Jesus. And then the author, he moves in verse 6 to quoting um, over the next couple of verses from the Old Testament. We've talked about how the author of Hebrews is repeatedly quoting the Old Testament. And he's quoting here from Psalm 8. So what I want to do is I want to read this psalm. I'm going to read the whole of Psalm 8. You can turn there if you want, but it'll be on the screen if you just want to follow along there. Because I think this will help us draw up some points of what the author of Hebrews is getting at. So Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heaven, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the Son of Man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So this is a psalm of praise. The author is clearly, clearly looking at God, looking at what God has created, and he is marveling at it. It exclaims God's majesty and his glory in all of the things that God has created. So the author of Psalm 8, which is David, King David, he's looking up at the sky with awe as he beholds the heavens and the moon and the stars. In beholding the vastness of God's creation, David wonders how God can still be aware of, how he can still care for humanity. He sees the vastness of everything out there, and then he thinks about, but we're like ants here on the earth, just doing our little things. And David marvels at the fact that this God who created all of this cares for, has regard, is mindful of those who are walking on the earth. He says humanity is lower than angels, but God has crowned them with glory and honor. He's given them dominion over all the works of God's hands. And so David is moved by God's kindness. He says, Man, you, you've looked on us, you've bestowed glory and honor on us, you, you've given us dominion over your creation, and it moves David to praise God, to thank him, to marvel at his kindness. Now one not obvious aspect to what's going on in Psalm 8 is, I think the language of Psalm 8 whispers the creation narrative regarding dominion. So, let me read from Genesis chapter 1. I want to read one verse, and hopefully you can hear some of the similarities of what's going on in Psalm 8 to what's going on in the creation narrative. It says there, Then God said, 
Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This talks more about what's on the earth. Psalm 8 talks more about what's in the seas. But the idea is the same, that God is giving dominion to humanity. God gave Adam and Eve dominion over everything. But Adam, he was a man that God was mindful of. He said, have dominion over what I have created. But the problem is Adam was also mindful of himself. He was mindful of himself, which was destructive for him and destructive for us and all of humanity as he ushered in sin into this world. So if a child of mine decides that the world should revolve around them, it's going to go bad for them, right? And oftentimes bad for everyone else involved. And and if I decide in, in my response to my child, I decide likewise that No, I I actually want the world to revolve around me, which unfortunately has happened too many times, and and be like, oh, no, you didn't, and and get an attitude with my kids, then then it just compounds everything all the more, right? It, It never goes well when we make it about ourselves. Adam made it about himself. Adam was the first man, but he failed. He failed to rule rightly. He failed to have dominion in the way that God called him to have dominion. But in this, Adam is pointing forward. Adam was the first man, but he wasn't the true man. He wasn't the ultimate man. In fact, he shows us we're in need of a better man, of a truer man. And that man is Jesus. And so this is what the author of Hebrews talking about and the author of Hebrews so he quote quotes part of Psalm 8 and then he's going to give some commentary on that for clarity so what we find in Psalm 8 is there's this emphasis on humanity that that's what David's writing about he's marveling that God has regard for humanity but in Hebrews we get this focus on Jesus so the author of Hebrews takes what's written in Psalm 8 and he say he's saying that's about Jesus we're talking about Jesus here. So first of all, what the author does with this is he quotes Psalm 8 is he drives home the sovereignty of Jesus. The fact that Jesus has power and control over everything and everyone. The fact that there is no power like the power that Jesus possesses. There's no king like Jesus. There's been many presidents. There's been many world rulers. There's been many movements. But there's been no king like Jesus. There's no control as Jesus controls. The way in which he controls things is far and beyond anyone or anything. And we read in verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he being God the Father left nothing outside Jesus' control. So nothing is outside of his control. Nothing. He rules over everything. So every mountain, every government, 
every social movement that we have seen throughout history, every penny of money, all money, he rules over it. Every family, every atom and molecule, Jesus rules over. He looks at all of it and he says, mine. It's subjected to him. He's in control of it all. So let's hit pause here for a second. Because that's a big statement. Did you wake up this morning dependent on that reality? Did you wake up convinced that Jesus is in control of everything? That absolutely everything in this world is subjected to him? The reason I ask those questions is because it's hard for us to see that often. And the author knows this. He continues in verse 8. He says, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. This is the already, but not yet. If everything is under Jesus' control, why do we not yet see it? Why do we succumb to fear and anxiety? Why do marriages disintegrate? Why do bullies get their way? Why is our nation fracturing? Why is cancer everywhere? If we think about it, is Jesus even there? Does he care? Because it looks like the world is going to hell in a handbasket, if we're honest with ourselves. I imagine the preacher, as he's preaching through this sermon in Hebrews, exercising rhetorical skill here. Making these statements and pausing, waiting, leaving his listeners yearning. What we see, what we see is our need for Jesus. As we look out at the landscape of this world, we have a need for one who is in control. One that we can trust for everything to be subjected to him. And this is why, seeing our need for Jesus, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Because we look out and all we will see is a need for someone, a good God to rule, someone we can trust to be in control of all of this. In the midst of this, we need to see Jesus for who he is. Jesus is the one who is mindful of us. He's the one who's loved us in the way where he said, I will suffer for your sin, for your sin. I will die for your sin. That's God's character. He has put everything in this world in its place. The earth turns, the winds blow, the sun shines, babies are born, the ocean roars, and amidst all of this profound power is a God that is mindful of man, mindful of us. He knows your heartache. He knows your fears. 
He knows your to-do list. He knows. And He cares. And Him allowing certain things in our lives doesn't make Him not good. It helps to reveal that we oftentimes don't know what is best for us. See, God's more concerned with our holiness than He is our happiness. But I can say that because our holiness leads to our happiness. Our right standing with God leads to us being satisfied. It leads to us being filled with peace, with joy. Jesus is a God who is mindful of us. The author continues in verse 9 with his commentary of Psalm 8. He says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We have to see what the author of Hebrews is doing here. This is so important. So he spent the first chapter building up this glorious picture of who Jesus is. He is sitting at the right hand of God. He is the heir of all things. He is the son of God. His word upholds the universe. He controls absolutely everything. And now, Jesus comes down lower than the angels. So the author just painted this picture of Jesus as high and lifted up, standing on a mountain above everyone and everything. And now, It's as though he's pushing Jesus off of the mountain, sending him tumbling all the way down. He's giving us a vision of who Jesus is, but he's also acknowledging that's not what we oftentimes see. Verses 8 and 9 state what we see. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We see him lower than the angels. There are things we can know about Jesus by seeing. There are things we can know about Jesus by seeing. There are other things that we can only know about Jesus by hearing. This is why we need to hear the words of Jesus. This is why we need to hear the gospel over and over. This is why we need to be reminded of his glory. Because we fail to see it. Sometimes it's very evident to us. It's right in front of us and yet we still don't see it. We don't believe it. Whether it's because of our sin or someone else's sin or whatever it is, we fail to see it. We fail to understand it. We fail to be moved by it. And this is the drift. This is the drift away from Jesus. When we have a family member or a friend who has for years rejected Jesus, It's hard to see how God could change their heart. For many years, we've only seen resistance, obstinacy, hardness of heart. But that is why we need to look at stories of what Jesus has done to people. Like Paul in the Bible. Paul was a man who hated Christians to the point of killing them. He hated Christians. And God comes to to him changes his heart, he rescues him, he uses him powerfully, he becomes what many people would consider the greatest missionary 
in the New Testament era. We need to be reminded of those stories, of what God does. We also need to be reminded of our stories. For those of us who are Christians, we need to be reminded of what God has done to us, for us, how He comes to us. Because I think we can so often minimize what He's done for us or minimize what He's done by emphasizing what we do. Right? Like if it's about what we do, all the discipline we employ, all the spiritual habits that we have, then it's not so much about what Jesus has done. But if we remind ourselves and we remind other people of what Jesus has done for us, of how he has rescued us, us, of how he's come to this person who is obstinate against him, someone like myself who was flipping God the bird, who had no interest in him, I wanted nothing to do with him, and yet he comes to me over the course of years and massages my heart, draws me, woos me, says, come and follow me and makes me a child of his. It's not because of anything impressive I did. He was patient with me. He was gracious towards me. He pursued me. And ultimately, he rescued me. That's a story I need to keep telling. I need to be reminding myself of what God has done for me. Because many days I doubt. Many days I drift. Many days I don't see as I ought to see. I don't understand as I ought to understand. And I can guess you are just like me. You are just like me. At the end of verse 9, we hear something that is confounding to our modern consumeristic ears. It says that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. In some sense, this is saying Jesus' suffering qualified him to be glorified and honored. Jesus was deserving of glory and honor before he came down off that mountain of glory and entered into this earthly realm lower than angels. This is, I think, the beauty of what Hebrews is doing. Psalm 8 is elevating the man, saying, God, you are mindful of us? That is awesome. The beauty of Hebrews is that God is coming down and entering into our midst. He's coming next to the weak, to the lost, to the broken, to those who are suffering. He's enjoining himself to us. The fact that he lowered himself below angels, that he took on flesh like you and me, that he was tempted and he suffered, that he emptied himself, displays what was already true. He was full of glory. That is who he was. It was his glorious nature that led him to suffer and die. And we have to see this distinct connection. It was his honor that led him to suffer death. And it was the suffering of death that led to Jesus being crowned with glory. His path to glory was filled with suffering and death. His path 
to honor and glory was filled with suffering and death. If we are honest, that is not the path we envision to glory and honor. It's not. If we think of ourselves and the path we will take to receive glory and honor, it is about us conquering obstacles, vanquishing enemies, rising above others, displaying success through our hard work and superior ability. And glory and honor is our reward for our hard work, for our stick to for our superiority over others. But that's not what it was for Jesus. Or maybe for some of us, we have kind of the martyr mentality, so we think our service or sacrifice, we're going to do a lot of that, and that's going to qualify us for honor or glory. But the reality is, when we have the martyr mentality, when we get to that point, we can't enjoy it. Because we're bitter towards everyone else who made us work so hard, who didn't work as hard as us, who made us pull more weight than they did. The path to glory for Jesus involves suffering. And and that should be instructive for us as we think about the Christian life. So, So think about what Hebrews is saying. If you ever find yourself sharing your faith with somebody else and they're mocking you. They're going to look down on you. They might have a snide comment. If that were ever to happen, which I've found is very rare in our culture, it happens, but it's rare, at least in my experience. If you're mocked for your faith, but we can look at cancer, bullying, inconvenience that we experience, anguish, quiet sacrifices that we make, Hebrews is saying, this is the road to glory and honor. The beautiful reality of this is that there's meaning in your suffering. There's meaning in your suffering. No one else can say that. There's no other religious system that's going to say that for us. There is meaning in your suffering. So there's this great promise that we have in front of us. Your suffering is not meaningless. Your suffering is not vain. God will take it and he will use it for your good. And beyond that, I would say your suffering is necessary because it exposes things in our hearts that need to be exposed. It exposes our reliance upon ourselves, how we think we are sufficient, how we are adequate, and we are not. That's what the gospel says, we are not. James 1-2 speaks of a related issue. He writes, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Our suffering produces steadfastness. It produces sturdiness in our hearts. As we suffer, we learn to look to Jesus to trust him for something we can't find in ourselves. He has strength that we don't have within ourselves. So our suffering produces steadfastness. There's also this reality that we can expect to suffer. Just by looking at Jesus, we can say, okay, if God suffered, 
If he had to suffer, and that's what qualified him for glory and honor, how much more us, right? But Jesus says we should expect to suffer. John 16, 33 says, In the world you will have tribulation. In this world we will have trouble. It will be hard. It will be difficult. We should expect that will happen. So, relatedly, our attempts to avoid suffering, to avoid hardship or trial, or, or the other side, or the other way to say this, our pursuit of comfort, our pursuit of a life of ease, may be part of our drift away from Jesus. That may be an effort that leads us away from glory and honor. So without encouraging living your life just trying to find suffering, so I don't want you to hear me say, go walk in front of a car. That's not what I'm saying, okay? So without encouraging that kind of a mentality in life, because suffering will find us. We live in a broken world, it will find us. If you find yourself in a spot that is filled with darkness, that's filled with despair, where you feel hopeless, that's where Jesus is. He is in the darkest night. We see this displayed on the cross. As he hangs on the cross, he's enveloped in darkness. And that's a picture for us. Jesus runs into the darkness. If you find yourself there, that is where Jesus is. That is where he meets us. And that is where hope begins when we're stripped of ourselves, our self-sufficiency. That's where we can begin to believe in Jesus. We can see our need for him, and he can provide for us what we really need. Sometimes people will say, ah, Jesus, he's God. He knew it would be bad, but there was this promise of glory and honor, right? So it's really not that impressive that Jesus would do this. He knew it would all work out for him. And some of us might use that as an excuse for lack of engagement. I've had non-Christians say, yeah, I, I can't get over that. Like, why? I mean, if Jesus knew that he'd be fine, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But if we're honest, the same promise is laid before us. I, if you struggle with that aspect of Christianity, the same promise is laid before us as well. If we will suffer death, the death of self, the death of our dreams, and surrender to Jesus, we likewise will be crowned with glory and honor. But the question is, are you willing to accept what Jesus says is glory and honor, or do you want to determine what that is yourself? Do you want to dictate, no, this is the glory and honor that I want for myself? Or will you surrender to what Jesus deems it to be? Will you receive from him what he says is glory and honor? But the offer is there. The offer that we can reign with Jesus. That we can exercise dominion over his creation with him. If we will believe. If we will believe the gospel couple points of gospel application for us as we close. 
today. We end our services with what we call gospel application, um, not just application, but gospel application because we want you to leave here not feeling the weight of all the things you need to do. The gospel is not about what we do, it's about what Jesus has done. So our gospel application points are reminding us this is what Jesus has done. This is who Jesus is. The call for us is to believe that. To believe in Jesus. So our first point is God is mindful of us. God is mindful of us. Primarily in and through Jesus. So God cares deeply about you. He cares deeply about your situation so much that he sent his son, his only son, knowing full well that he would be mocked. He'd be scorned, he'd be rejected, and he would be killed. But he sent Jesus to save you. He cares much more deeply than you know. Much more deeply than you imagine. And I would go so far as to say God cares much more deeply about you than you do. God cares way more deeply about you than you do. His love is deeper. Now we have ways in which we think God should be mindful of us. God, I want you to look at me, to be thinking of me in these specific ways. And we need to not trust those. We don't put on God expectations. We don't tell him, this is how you relate to me. God is so mindful of us that he doesn't give us what we want to show us we need something better. We settle for less often. We settle for too little too often. We say, I want this. I need this. The question is, is that what God says we need or we should have? God is mindful of us primarily in and through Jesus. When we think of how God is mindful of us, we should think of his son Jesus and understand how he relates to us through Jesus. That is how he is mindful of us, primarily, in and through his son, Jesus. So we look at Jesus, and that's how we understand how he's mindful of us, how he cares about us, and, and what he calls us to in the Christian life. So God is mindful of us, primarily in and through Jesus Christ. And then secondly, everything is subjected to Jesus even when we don't see it. Everything, everything is subjected to Jesus. And this is intended to comfort us, to free us, and to compel us to live a life of mission. And I know we struggle with this. I know you struggle with this because 1 Corinthians says, we see dimly. We don't see clearly. You see things wrongly. You see many things wrongly. Th this is what Satan is working for. This is what he desires, that he could deceive you so that ultimately he can destroy you. That's his dream. That Satan would be able to destroy you. 
and your destruction happens as you're separated from Jesus. And so what this says is, you need help. You need help. And, and I see this all the time. And I'm not saying you and not me. I need help as well. But, but I'm reminded of this. I feel this all the time in pastoring as I interact with all of you. Just wrestling with in that moment, because every moment is different. What is needed? What is needed in this moment? What's the question I can ask? What's the truth that can be given? I feel my weakness, my neediness, my dependence, dependence on God's Spirit in those moments. And part of my fear in all of this is seeing so much self-assurance. We are very self-assured people. I know this is what God says, what He did, what He means for me. And, and so often our self-assurance comes from us sitting in our living room by ourselves. It's not, I've asked these six people who care deeply about me, I've asked them their opinion, I've let them speak into my life to help me with all those blind spots. It's, I've gone into my closet and I figured this out and I'm sure of this thing. I also feel this, this reality that I need help uh, regularly in parenting. Why is my child acting this way? What, why are they acting out because of this thing? And oftentimes, I can think of my kids and be like, man, you need help, kid. But the reality is, I'm experiencing that because I need that. I have things I need to see in my heart. D Jesus knows that there are things I need to learn. When I get impatient with my kids, that, expo that is exposing things in my heart that I need to learn. I'm not trusting in Jesus in that moment. I'm trusting in myself, my control of those circumstances. I'm not getting what I want. And Jesus is graciously exposing that. My kids might not say that's graciously exposing it because I'm taking it out on them, right? But I feel my need. What can I learn in the midst of this? Jesus knows I need help. And this is why we need to hear the gospel repeatedly from each other. Though we can't always see Jesus, this highlights our need to repeatedly hear the good news of Jesus. So tell one another the gospel. Listen to the gospel. This is Jesus' mindfulness of you. And also because faith comes from hearing. It's what Romans 10, 17 says. Faith comes from hearing God is mindful of us, and he is in control. I need to hear that. I need you to tell me that. That God is mindful of me, that he's in control of everything. You need to hear that. You need to hear that from one another. You need to hear yourselves say that. We all need to hear this so that our faith in Jesus would be built. That's what we need. First and foremost, that we would be rooted and grounded in Jesus' love for us. We need to hear the gospel. We need to pay much closer attention to it. 
And one way by which we do that is hearing it over and over and over. It's the best news in the world. We're going to take some time now to remember the gospel, to reflect what Jesus has done on the cross for us. We're going to sing some songs and we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together. Hebrews 2.9, at the end of the verses we're looking at, it says, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus didn't taste death like my kids taste the sourness of a lime. They just like put the tip of their tongue on the lime and just taste a teeny bit of it. Jesus drank the whole cup of death. He guzzled it for us. And why? Because his death is the means of grace for you. It's the means of our sins being forgiven for our relationship with this glorious God who stands over everything, for our relationship with him to be kindled. So this is what we want to reflect on. This is what we want to shape us. And as we grow in grace, as we understand it more, as it marks our lives all the more, then others will encounter it through us. So this time that we're going to have together, this is a time for us to remember Jesus, what he did on the cross. It's a time for us to examine our hearts, to confess our sins to God and to one another. This is another time when we can have emphasis on community. We can be reminded confessing our sins to one another is a great communal activity. So the bread and the cup, these are signs of Jesus' beaten body and his shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. This is given as a powerful sign of remembrance of God's lavish love for undeserving sinners like me and like you. So I want to invite you guys as the worship team plays to come and observe these elements. If you've never trusted in Jesus, you've never trusted in his sacrifice on the cross, you've never been moved by the fact that he is mindful of you, then the bread and the cup are not for you. But we want to be really clear, Jesus is for you. And Center Church is for you. And this is an invitation to you to receive Jesus' forgiveness for the first time. Now, I'd love to chat with you at any, at any point during this time. So let's remember Jesus' death and how in the midst of his dying for us, he is mindful of us. He's showing care for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for...